Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Very pleased to say that we have an annual tradition here at Bloomberg Surveillance. We catch up with Ian Bremer and the team at Eurasia Group to go through the top 10 risks. Eurasia Group's top 10 risks. And at number four is China at home. We're lucky to have both Ian Bremer and Elizabeth Economy with us of the Hoover Institute. And Liz, I wanted to start with this quote in the report. Foreign firms will face an increasingly difficult environment inside China. The two-way political risk of operating in both the US and China, the task of keeping both Washington and Beijing happy. And perhaps, Lisa, we can extend it further. The task of keeping a progressive consumer in America happy and an increasingly nationalistic one in China happy too. Liz, how tough is that going to be? Yeah, I think it is a pretty significant and growing challenge. Um, I think uh, many uh, companies are trying to navigate a sort of a growing sense that um, not only do U.S. companies, not only do they need to be concerned about national security issues, which have, have long been uh, present uh, sort of in, in U.S. foreign policy and foreign economic policy, right, to ensure that uh, companies aren't exporting technology that can be used uh, by other countries uh, that might pose a national security threat. But now, uh, increasingly, we're dealing with uh, human rights issues as well, human rights abuses. Uh, and this is particularly important, of course, in the context of China, uh, where we've seen, you know, Know, a very repressive uh, regime under Xi Jinping beginning in 2013 to the point now that we have, you know, over a million uh, of Chinese-owned citizens, uh, the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, you know, in labor and uh, and re-education camps detained there against their, their will. And so, you know, how uh, does American business uh, respond to this? And I think increasingly Congress and the Biden administration are taking a very tough line on this. So uh, I think you are finding American companies <clears throat> trying to figure out how to navigate uh, in a very new uh, environment. Um, and, and in fact, as you suggest, the Chinese consumer then, when companies do stand up and say, yes, we're not sourcing uh, from Xinjiang, right? We're not sourcing from this region. We're, we're not taking uh, any products uh, that are the result of forced labor from these Uyghur Muslims. Uh, then you have the Chinese consumers on the other end uh, threatening to boycott. Uh, and we've seen uh, companies like H&M and Nike and others uh, facing threats or actual uh, boycotts of some sort as a result of these companies trying to do the right thing in terms of human rights. So it is a very tricky situation. Ian, for a long, long time, these companies have been able to sit on the fence, play the progressive card at home in America, then go abroad and do whatever the Chinese Communist Party needs them to do. The Disney company, the Walt Disney Company, a fantastic example of that, doing all it can to embrace the Chinese Communist Party, to remain, to have access, to make sure their movies are shown. At the same time, Ian, we have a government in America accusing the Chinese Communist Party of genocide. Ian, what on earth do you advise a multinational operating in both America and China right now to do? Yeah, how do you, how do you be a woke CEO for a domestic audience and uh, participate in a, a, an expanding market uh, that you want to be in when the American political leadership is saying that that country is committing genocide? Well, obviously, you have to speak out of two sides of your mouth, and you get caught when you're doing that, and it's difficult. It's very uncomfortable. Look, most American CEOs, despite all of the problems that Liz and I have been talking about this morning, want to do 
more business in China. They believe that China is going to continue to expand. It's an enormous consumption market. They don't want to leave it on the table. And yet, they know that anything that they say about that or said about that to them is going to be problematic for. You saw Ray Dalio on CNBC a while ago just get absolutely hammered in the United States for saying, hey, like I, I mean, you talk, talking about human rights, where am I going to invest? I'm just trying to make money. I mean, CNBC, Bloomberg, we're talking to capitalists here, people that are trying to make money, and yet the domestic audience is saying that's not enough. You've got to do less. We've got the Beijing Olympics coming up, and the Biden administration trying to square the circle by saying we're going to diplomatically boycott, but the companies, the American companies that are going over there and sponsoring, they can still sponsor. Yet we know that so many senators and members of the House are going to be scrutinizing and criticizing those companies for doing precisely that. One more I'll mention, Elon Musk. Uh, you know, wealthiest man in the world has been enormously, you know, sort of uh, critical of the U.S. government, the SEC for going after him, uh, making life challenging for him. And yet in China, he is incredibly supportive of the Chinese Communist Party. And it's becoming incredibly difficult for him to continue to do that. His SpaceX uh, company in the United States, which gets a lot of money mostly from NASA and the Pentagon, now the Chinese government is saying, hey, mm. what's going on? You almost hit one of our, sat you know, one of our satellites. Um, that, that, all of that is a very serious problem for American corporates that are trying to avoid politics. Politics won't avoid them. Yeah, uh, and Elon Musk, I think, is a, is a very special case in so many ways. But I see it here, Ian, with the leaders of especially German export-oriented companies, right? They um, are not alone, though. It's not just the corporates. The governments here also seem to want to uh, build and, and hold on to strong ties to the Chinese economy in ways that the uh, uh, Americans in Washington, D.C. wouldn't necessarily support. You know, the funny thing is you talk to the American leaders uh, privately and they recognize that the private sector uh, wants to do more business and they recognize that the interdependence of the United States and China is actually really important to our own national interest, our own national security. But they can't say that publicly. You know why? Because Biden lost votes in swing states in 2020 because he was perceived as Beijing Biden, as soft on China. The Republicans hit him on that and they will not make that mistake again. So publicly they must come across as much tougher on the corporates and tougher on the bankers and tougher on anyone that's saying that you know China's a great place to be. And that's why you see even the Biden administration talking about the Chinese committing genocide on the ground. That makes it much more uncomfortable and difficult for the American corporates to operate. There's no question there. It's extremely uncomfortable. Lucky to have Ian Bremer with us this morning of the Eurasia Group. And a thank you to Elizabeth Economy of the Hoover Institute and the author of the Third Revolution. Liz, great to catch up. Thank you. Joining us now once again on the top risks for 2022 and also joining us, Jane Harmon, President Emerita of the Wilson Center and former member of Congress. Ian, the U.S. midterms make the list of these risks. When we talk about the political environment in the United States, especially on a week that brings the one year anniversary of January 6th, are we more divided now than we were a year ago? Yeah, I mean, we've learned literally zero lessons from the election of 2020, and, and that's a that's a serious problem. This was the most dysfunctional and delegitimized election of our lifetimes in the United States. And we've done literally nothing to fix the underlying problems. Indeed, 
the Republican Party is more controlled by President Trump today and more Republicans believe that the election was stolen today than did on January 6th. And the likelihood is, of course, overwhelmingly that the Republicans are going to take the House. Uh, they may take the Senate um, in midterm elections, and they'll take it with an underlying message that the election of 2020 was stolen. This is deeply problematic and a pivotal midterm election, probably the most important midterm of our lives. Well, and Jane, what's, the picture that Ian is painting here is one of a very politically divided uh, United States, one that doesn't necessarily project a picture of strength to the rest of the world. Is the U.S. in a position right now to be a leader on the global stage? Not so much. Um, Ian has just produced a wonderful report on political risk uh, going around the world. And I've been in Europe three times in, uh, in the past few months, and people there are very worried. They don't see uh, the Biden administration delivering on what it promised, but they also understand the under an underlying reason. Um, maybe some of it has to do with the Biden administration, but a big underlying reason is that Congress is totally dysfunctional. And something that's in Ian's report that got my attention is, is uh, the comment that the only thing possibly worse than President Trump being reelected is President Trump being not being reelected. Um, the point of which is uh, underlying lack of confidence in our voting structure. And, you know, I'm listening to all this talk about inflation, big problem, and about whether we could pass any form of Build Back Better. I think it is crucial for Congress to pass uh, some form of voting rights reform, or else we may be abdicating uh, our, our democratic voting process and letting uh, elected uh, legislators or appointed electors, uh, election uh, officials uh, decide uh, what the vote is after people's uh, valid votes are discounted. So Jane, Jane, what exactly do you mean by that? In which direction would this reform go? Are you saying that the Congress should pass uh, uh, laws that require you to prove your identity, prove your citizenship, and limit the amount of absentee voting that can happen so that people on the right have more faith in the system? Well, I want people on across the spectrum to have more faith in the system. Uh, it is true that in our constitution, that the states set the, the, the terms of elections, but the federal government does have, uh, and our constitution does preempt uh, certain aspects of this. And it is appropriate, for example, for the federal government, which has done this, to declare voting machines critical infrastructure, it's also appropriate for the federal government to decide uh, you know, what are our basic conditions of counting votes. And Joe Manchin, since his name comes up every five minutes, has set out some terms that he would accept on uh, voting rights, and they seem broadly acceptable. And so I think it is crucial for Congress to act soon before all of these laws take effect. They're in 19 or 20 states, and we end up with uh, a hot mess uh, after November 2022. A hotter mess, right? Because it's already pretty messy. Ian, Ian, let me get back to you and ask you about the international reputation of the U.S. in terms of dependability. Was the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan really damaging to um, the U.S. reputation? Um, the way that the withdrawal was executed was damaging, perhaps most so with America's Gulf allies who are going to be affected by the Taliban uh, running Afghanistan, uh, the refugees, the radicalism 
more than anybody else, the Emiratis, for example, the Saudis, for example. Um, but, but I think much more broadly, the issue is that of the underlying American political system. That's what's damaging America's ability uh, to be seen as credible going forward. Jane uh, hit on this. We have just had successful elections in some of the world's biggest and richest democracies in Germany, in Japan, in Canada in the last few months. No problem, no dysfunction, uh, no questions of legitimacy. The United States, on the other hand, increasingly has a fundamental structural issue about whether or not the average American believes in its political system, what it stands for, whether the elections are legitimate, whether the two parties are equally uh, legitimate in a representative democracy. These are fundamental and profound issues that are not only not about to be resolved in the midterms, but are very likely to get proximately worse. And I agree completely with Jane that voting rights is becoming much more important than Build Back Better, but voting rights is not about mansion. Voting rights is about cinema. She is the vote that you have to actually get to make voting rights happen, and so far she looks ungettable. Uh, people I talk to in the Senate tell me that that is probably not going to happen this year. And so again, your baseline, when you think about the top risks for 2022 for the United States, is probably one of the more negative calls that you have. You wish, when I first started this, the firm in 1998, the United States was never on this list because frankly, the question of American democracy, representative democracy, legitimacy of our institutions was something you could count on, something the markets could count on, something our allies could count on, something even our adversaries had to count on, even if they didn't like it. That is no longer true. And obviously, that's a dominant issue for anyone considering uh, what the state of the world is going to be going forward. How do you think, Jane, the rest of the world is going to view this then? <laughs> We're tying two stories together here. The number one risk last year at Eurasia Group was number 46. It was this presidency. Now it's the midterms at number three. Jane, that's got to be music to the ears of the likes of Russia, the Chinese Communist Party, who are thinking, looking ahead to, say, places like Taiwan, looking at Ukraine right now. Jane, what does it mean for their view, their decisions that they make, the likes of Russia, the likes of China? Well, I don't think they're unhappy to see dysfunction in the United States, and in various ways they're exploiting it. Uh, surely Russia is, and Ian's report points out that we should expect more disinformation um, uh, through social media for 2022. Um, that will, I think, that's dead right. Uh, on China, China has a lot of its own problems, again, pointed out in the report. But again, but I think since we have made China uh, a, a, a focus of our foreign policy, and the, the rhetoric has been pretty harsh. Uh, Xi Jinping is, again, probably quietly smiling at our dysfunction. What worries me, and Afghanistan is, is emblematic of this, is we may be targeting the right issues, but our execution is poor. Leaving Afghanistan uh, was a mess. Uh, and there was pre-planning uh, by the Biden administration, but there's all this finger pointing about we had a hard deadline with, with, that wasn't uh, based on uh, uh, situationally based, and we didn't let the military act sooner and blah, blah, blah. We did our intel, which was pretty bad, I've heard this from a, a very important member of the Senate uh, projecting a pretty bad mess, uh, was ignored, et cetera, uh, because uh, the president decided we had to leave. I'm not against ending the military mission. But I think that as the world looked at this and as Europe felt discounted, NATO did not feel fully consulted, uh, there was a huge uh, tail on this that was very negative, And it has hurt us ever since. And 
I don't think we should be abdicating our role as the international global leader. I just wrote a book on this. Uh, since the Cold War, America has not had a foreign policy strategy uh, for the world. And I think it's long overdue. Biden had the beginnings of this, and I salute him for it. It was human rights. It was working with allies. It was surging diplomacy. It was uh, making uh, foreign policy uh, relevant to Americans, average Americans. All of these are good things, but now we have to execute. Jane, when you hear the president say America's back, do you believe him? I want to believe him. Europe doesn't believe him. Uh, he came to a G7 meeting a year ago and said America is back. And then the Afghanistan departure happened last summer. And then the messaging around the Australia nuclear subdeal happened, which even he confessed was very clumsy. Uh, we can do better. Um, his team is good. I'm not ragging on, on the administration's team, but I'm ragging on a process that somehow uh, doesn't uh, convey uh, the, the kind of competence uh, and planning that uh, he's, he should be known for. I mean, he was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for yeah. a long time. He has long experience uh, and he knows everybody and a lot of them work for him. And so just let's hope that 2022 is a better beginning, uh, although it is fraught with this other controversy around Build Back Better, inflation, COVID never ending, <sighs> made a surge possibly peak. Uh, and uh, um, uh, as far as I'm concerned, this, this looming voting rights c c c catastrophe. Ian, we've got about 90 seconds left. I was going yeah, over the top 10 risks from last year. And I noticed one miss, I think, one miss from Eurasia Group was the belief that energy prices would remain low. One win was Turkey. Turkey in your top 10 last year. It's in your top 10 again this year. In 60 seconds, Ian, why the concern about Turkey again this year? Look, I mean, inflation uh, spiraling, unemployment really high, and Erdogan and his AK party are at record lows right now. And he is not someone oriented towards representative democracy. He is willing to cause lots of repression at home and also be much more experimental in his foreign policy with plenty of places he can cause trouble in the region. Think about Greek, Greece and Cyprus. Think about Syria. Think about Libya. Think about uh, Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia-Azerbaijan. This is a country that is headed for trouble right now, a hell of a lot faster than any other major emerging markets out there. It's a country that a lot of us care about uh, and should be doing a lot better, but the politics have gotten in the way. Ian, wonderful. Our congratulations to you and the team on another fantastic piece of work to kick off a new year. Ian Bremer of Eurasia and to Jane Harmon of the Wilson Centre. Jane, thank you to you as well. Joining us now, a big equity market bull, Ben Laidler, global market strategist at eToro. Ben, let's just start right here and not bury the lead. We've had three years of double-digit gains. You think we can make it year four? Ben Laidler, why? I, I think we're still significantly underestimating the earnings story. Uh, consensus earnings growth globally for this year is, is well under 10% uh, in a year when GDP growth is going to be nearly twice long-term average levels. And companies have shown us throughout last year that they are more than capable of offsetting all these uh, cost pressures uh, that they're seeing. Uh, and I think valuations can stay very high. Uh, the Fed, I think, is going to move you know, very slowly off a very low uh, interest rate number, bond yields are going to stay reasonably low. And this is a market that's changed over the last sort of couple of decades. It's just full of, um, you know, 
bigger, more profitable, more sustainably profitable companies. And I think you put those two things together, earnings numbers, which should probably be twice as high as they are right now, and valuations, which I think are going to come down a bit, but but not much. And I think those, those are your ingredients. So I think, I think the biggest risk remains not being in equities rather than being out of equities. Well, let's focus on one of those points that this thesis is predicated on, and that is persistently lower yields. How low do they have to stay? What is the threshold for equities to still be supported? And not just in terms of the nominal yield, but real yields as well. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously been a huge uh, um, you know, tailwind for equities, but I, I don't think it changes you know, that soon, right? I mean, we're coming off, you know, your typical Fed cycle is three to 400 basis points. This will probably be something like half that, and it'll be much slower and, and much longer. Uh, I think that gives, you know, that gives economies, that gives markets, that gives stocks just a very long time, uh, if you like, to sort of grow into this. Uh, and 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 the, the the impact I think the here and now impact is 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 going to be on valuations. Our valuations optically look high, yeah. but I do think the, I do think the world has changed. Not only are bond yields going to stay low and move up slowly, and to, and to specifically answer your point, I think the tipping point is quite a long way off. You know, yields are heavily heavily negative, uh, and even even in nominal terms. Um, they're still extraordinarily low. Uh, and, and again, I think the market has changed. I think this sort of intellectual sort of laziness, so 21 times earnings versus a long-term average of 16 for you know, the S&P 500 PE, you know, the, the long-term mm-hmm. average is not relevant anymore. The tech sector is twice as large. It's pretty much the most profitable sector in the market, and it's still got a lot of growth. That's a huge change to the composition of this market, which we haven't had, didn't have 20, 30 years ago. Do you think tech will be able to retain its leadership of this market, though, Ben, or is that going to shift shift elsewhere? I, I think the so-called everything rally continues. Right? I mean, you look at your your equal weighted S and P five hundred. You know, outperformed the, the the weighted S and P five hundred last year, not by a lot, but it does tell you that everything did pretty well last year. I mean, the, the thought that this is a sort of tech-led market, that it's completely dependent on tech. You know, tech's important, but it's not the only driver here. I mean, last year was, was about a lot more than tech, and I think that continues this year. Uh, I think tech is sort of the new defensives, and you definitely want to own them. But I don't think they're going to be the leadership this year. I think you want the cheaper segments. I think you want the higher growth segments. I think that's what's going to lead this year. Are, are you worried, Ben, about profit margins getting hit hard by inflation? Uh, not really. Um, I mean, it's a legitimate question. The market's clearly worried about it, which is why you've got these very low earnings growth expectations for this year. But I think we've—if I think we probably had the peak of inflation pressure on margins, and companies are still, at least in the U.S., are reporting net profit margins of 13% for the second quarter in a row, which is the highest ever. I think companies in this environment where growth remains strong, which I think is going to continue into this year, uh, companies are showing you they can. They can offset it. They can mitigate it. And I, and I think, you know, A, that continues. B, there are big segments of the market where margins are still super depressed. I mean, all these reopening segments, which I think incrementally through this year will get those margins back. Um, I think that's a story we should also be talking more about and will be an offset to, um, you know, any of these. You know, if I'm wrong and, and you know, the more mainstream companies you know, do see pressure on their margins as the year progresses. What a way to start 2022. Ben Laidler of eToro. Ben, I say it often. Every time you join us, you've been bullish. You've been right. Ben, thank you, sir. When we're looking at such massive numbers, and Kaylee, we've been covering this for a few days of more than a million, now more than two million cases a day globally. And 
that's got to be a drastic underestimate, right? Because most yeah. people who test positive for COVID or have it and don't even test positive never tell any public health officials. Um, you're going to send a lot more people to the hospital, and that's the big concern. So, do you does does Eric Adams make the right move for parents and for kids, or does he make the right move for um, healthcare workers? That's what I think the interesting uh, debate is. Yeah, it's a very very good question, Matt. Let's pose it now to Joshua Sarfstein, Vice Dean of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. When you think about schools in particular and children, where we've seen pediatric hospitalizations actually on the rise amid the spread of this variant, do you think keeping schools open is the right move? I do. I think so with the appropriate precautions. I do think that the um, doctor from Northwestern had it right that if done well, school is a you know re a relatively safe environment for, for kids. Um, masking, uh, tests, especially during the surge of cases, I think it um, is very important for kids to be in school. And uh, I think the chance that school becomes an explosive source of new infections is low with precautions. But explosive new infections is really what we've seen, uh, not in schools specifically, but generally 10 million cases in just a week. Are we reaching a peak of this wave considering how quickly it is spreading through the population? I think at a certain point, it really uh, has to slow down. And that's probably within a couple of weeks or, or a few weeks away. Um, and that's, I think, going to be good news. The question is, can we keep hospitalizations down enough during this period so we're not swamping hospitals? Because even though there's a less risk of getting hospitalized uh, with Omicron, um, it's still a risk. And with so many people infected, you see numbers increasing. In the hospital, I heard from some doctors saying, it's a lot of patients, but the good news is they're not as sick overall as they were back in the Delta wave. Dr. Sharfstein, how reliable are tests? You know, I, I keep talking to people who um, went to a party with someone who tested negative right before the party, but then on the day after or the day after that, um, they tested positive, and then all of a sudden everyone at the party's got it. I mean, how much can we rely on these lateral flow tests? That's a really great question because in the United States, we have a great faith in testing. We just assume that the test is going to give us the answer. And it's very hard to process the fact that there are cases that the tests will miss. And testing only helps in aggregate. If everybody's testing, then we're going to have fewer overall cases. But that doesn't mean you couldn't get into trouble in a situation just like that in a party. And I think that uh, people have to check their risk tolerance and realize that they're lowering the risk where everybody's getting tested, but they're not eliminating it. And you just have to be judicious about, you know, what what you want to do, what's valuable to you, and um, and keeping in mind the the limits of the testing. What what's your take, by the way, on flights, on the safety of being inside a giant aluminum tube with a few hundred other people for a few hours? You know, two years on, because before this. Um, COVID pandemic, I thought everybody gets sick on planes. That's just part of traveling. You get sick. That's why mm -hmm. somebody invented airborne and made a billion dollars off of it. <laughs> However, throughout this pandemic, talking to uh, airline executives and engineers, I've come to believe that maybe it is a cleaned out air, safer place to be as long as everyone's masked. How do you view it? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think everything's relative. I mean, compared to just sitting at home and doing nothing, it's going to be riskier. But there is a pretty frequent air exchange. You have the chance to wear a mask. And of course, you have the chance to be vaccinated and boosted. So someone who's vaccinated and boosted and masked in an airplane, that is not a, a very high risk for sitting there. I think it's pretty low. Um, and again, it, it boils down to risk tolerance. People who want to avoid the virus at all costs, no matter what, they're going to be stuck at home. But you can now, and I think as we get to 2022 and we say, look, we're going to go back to living our lives, we're going to figure out a way through this, you have to take calculated risks. And air travel, I think, is is reasonable um, under the circumstances. Now, in the middle of a huge wave of Omicron, um, I think there's some things that we're going to do differently in our lives. But once that's behind us, I think we're going to see 2022 uh, play out a little differently. All right. Thank you so much to jo Joshua Sharfstein at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Appreciate your time and happy new year to you. We had a heck of a 2021 in the S&P 500 up 27 percent. The month of December was the best December in terms of performance since 2010. What do we do now? Let's bring in Doug Cass because he's got some thoughts on this stuff. Doug Cass, Seabreeze Partners President. Doug, what's on your radar for 2022 as it relates to these markets? What are you telling your clients? Well, I would start by saying that um, that last year began with this uh, a marriage of monetary and fiscal policies, something that we've never seen, or I've never seen in my investment career, and it's ending with a potentially failed bill better bill and a central bank that's quickly getting out of the bond buying business. So I would say that the setup for 2022 is far different than 2021. Yep. Um, I expect economic growth will slow relative to consensus expectations and that inflationary pressures will continue in the face of supply dislocations influenced in large measure because of country and business restrictions. Um, and that will serve to result in disappointing corporate profits. Doug, happy new year. Uh, I'm what I'm very hey, happy hi. new year. <laughs> happy new year. Uh, I'm, I'm very curious why in a lot of folks kind of 2022 outlooks, uh, I'm not seeing a ton of geopolitics in there yet. Every day we seem to be talking about Russia, China, Turkey. How do you or perhaps why do you not price that into a market right now? Well, I do a surprise list very similar to um, my friend Byron Ween. Um, and I do it every year. I've been doing it for 20 years, besides running a new hedge fund, Seabreeze Partners. I've been blogging uh, for 24 years on the street.com's Real Money Pro site. And I write this list of surprises. And I have a bunch of them this year, uh, which incorporate that concern. Uh, one of my concerns is that what little is left of global harmony is upended in a year characterized by um, expanding geopolitical tensions on three continents, Iran and Israel, obviously China and Taiwan, and Russia and Ukraine. And that's a big negative. So how does that play out? I mean, uh, you know, I think one of the things that the markets seem to be discounting, Doug, is that uh, it's all going to work out here. Um, I, are you suggesting that these risks are perhaps a little bit more than this market's discounting? I think we have a lot of surprises in store and a lot of risks in store for this year. Um, I'd be happy to go over a couple of surprises really quickly. The yeah, give us, a couple, give us a couple of your favorites. Sure. My, my number one favorite, and I can expand upon it, is that it's going to be 
clear by the end of 2022 that we are fated for another Trump-Clinton presidential race uh, in 2024, but it's not the Trump you, you think. Um, I'm going to that. <laughs> well, um, I, the surprise is that President Biden becomes sufficient, sufficiently incapacitated such that President Harris becomes the first female president of the United States. Okay. And she immediately becomes, in effect, a lame duck president uh, and unfortunately has no significant successful legislative accomplishments over the next year. And um, so both um, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin immediately put Harris to the test with this series of foreign policy crises, and she proves not to be up to the task. And the November midterm elections result in a landslide for the Republicans who take the Senate and win a sizable majority in the House. Yeah, I would say Um, that that's not discounting the market, Doug. No. And so meanwhile, I think at the same time Biden gets sick, Donald Trump also becomes ill and announces that he won't run for president in 2024. So this is the surprise. It creates this wide open field for nomination in both parties. And probably sometime in the second half of next year, of this year, excuse me, Nikki Haley announces she'll run for president and assumes the de facto mantle of the party's leadership and takes a strong lead towards that Republican presidential nomination. And then at the same time, leading Democrats speak out and encourage surprisingly Hillary Clinton to run again, though she remains um, publicly uncommitted. She's clearly interested and, according to numerous sources, is seriously considering a run. Now, the most interesting twist of this whole thing is that privately, the former president, who's ill, uh, lobbies, postures, and grooms his daughter Ivanka to run for president. And almost overnight, when her or his and her political ambitions are revealed, Ivanka takes a significant lead over Haley as her father's supporters quickly return in force. All right. So given that scenario, which, by the way, just to conclude it, Clinton, in response, in a hasty response to Trump's declaration, Clinton announces her plan. So, again, the stage is set for Trump, Clinton, but different, a different Trump. Yeah, yeah. That sounds I mean, this is a a Netflix uh, uh, movie, I think you just novella sketched out for us, Doug. That can't be good for risk assets here. Are, Are you I mean, I got to think that I, I know you went negative on the market several months ago. Are you more so now? Are you doubling down now? Because that's the scenario that you just spelled out. A, it's a great Netflix novella, but it's also not good for stock markets. Yeah, practically speaking, besides the uh, likely uh, rate hikes, and I believe the Fed is going to be far more aggressive than people expect. Remember, Paul, the Fed is ending a one5 trillion dollar quantitative easing program in the next three months. That's more than QE1 and QE2 combined, and it's almost 50% above the size of QE3. So the liquidity faucet is being turned off at the same time uh, banks outside the U.S. are tightening. And um, so my scenario is basically that we have been stoking a very dangerous asset bubble fueled by that liquidity of policy. We've deepened income and wealth inequality. And we're embarking on a policy of uh, money printing that has generated inflation from which it is hard to escape. So my scenario is the following. I think we're going to have a general valuation reset lower. And if you look over history, on average, a 100 basis point rise in the Fed fund rates, which I think we'll get this year, is typically associated with at least a 15% valuation adjustment lower. And if you consider where today's elevated valuations are, that reset has the potential of being more than the historic average. 
I believe as a result of the rate increase, we're going to see a hard rotation from growth to value. If you combine the reset lower and this rotation and disappointing earnings growth, um, it could translate into neg- negative overall returns for the S&P. Um, I think that, as I said, the right. uh, Fed is going to be far more aggressive than is reflected in general expectations, and less liquidity could result in a marked reduction in flows into equity funds, which have been the straw that stirs the drink in 2021. Right. Um, we've had unprecedented fuel in the markets. And as I said, the setup for 2022 is far different than 2021. And I don't think people are realizing that um, the setup is far different than any other time in the last 13 years. And we've had positive returns basically in all but one of those years. In fact, 17 out of the last 19 years, we have shown positive S&P returns. So um, fiscal and monetary policy is no longer unbounded. And we're likely well past the points of peak economic activity and peak uh, liquidity. Hey, Doug, thanks uh, so much for joining us. Always love getting your perspective on these markets. Unique, if nothing else. Doug Cass, Seabreeze Partners, president, uh, giving us his thoughts on these markets, including his 15 surprises for 2022. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.